1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I direct to the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter, so that I'm, you may help me on my journey wherever I go. I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches in Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. As Pastor Barry comes to preach the word, let's uh, pray, shall we? We thank you again, Father, and do not take for granted the privilege we have of your word and the so many aids that we have to understand it. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We thank you too, Lord, for Pastor Barry in his preparation for today. And we just ask for the power of your Spirit to open his lips, to open our ears and our hearts, that your word indeed may have the effect you want to have in our lives. 
that we may glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Tony. Well, go ahead and nudge your neighbor and say, I wonder what he's going to do with that. <laughs> well, we finish up this fantastic epistle. If, again, if you're visiting with us, this is where we find ourselves this morning, having gone through the book of Corinthians these last number of weeks and months. And those are Paul's final words in this particular letter. They're words that give a glimpse into a certain kingdom fundamental, kingdom dynamic that is fundamental to people who live with the truth, the glorious truth that Jesus is alive. And yes, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Our, our, our Lord is risen. And this is where these words follow on from that last chapter that was handled last week. And it ends this way. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Say, well, what does that labor look like? And this chapter goes on to say, well, actually, you know, it, it looks pretty normal. There's no astounding theology that is proclaimed in Paul's final words of, of directives, but there are directives that give a glimpse into a community that has astounding theology. And those words from the last chapter, I think, must resound in our ears as we begin to look at the directives that the apostle gives to the church in his final words. This is the main point this morning that I would like to get across to you. It's printed in your bulletin. It's carefully worded as I had time to think about each word. And I think it's the main point of the text. It's what I would like you to take home with you today. That there is a dynamic kingdom bond. I hope you know what that's all about. That you're not living in isolation. That you're not living in the dynamic of the world, but that you're living in a kingdom dynamic. And that you're living in that kingdom dynamic with other people. With a bond with other people. With a risen Lord. And we're all different. We have different gifts. We have different personalities. The church in Corinth had their favorites. They didn't like Timothy. They liked Apollos. That's who they really wanted. And Paul says, well, actually, he's not coming. They were different people of different resources. And yet, he says to each of you, you should set something aside. They had different possessions. They had different locations. But all of that, all of that, there was a kingdom dynamic that, that transcends normal cultural patterns, normal cultural expectations, which is very, very significant. Look at the culture around us now. We, we, we live in a world where the culture is bent towards the self. It's bent towards self-fulfillment. And this gives us a glimpse into a community that's living a, a, a kingdom dynamic that isn't bent on where culture just naturally takes them. If you just bob along down the river of our culture, you know where it's going to take you. Absolutely nowhere in terms of the kingdom of God. 
And it's a group of people who aren't bent on what the culture lays before them, but bent on something that transcends the culture, that speaks into the culture. And it's not about self-fulfillment. It's about kingdom advancement. Two simple points. That this bond that these people experience and the Apostle Paul speaks into is sustained by their affections. Two particular affections. First of all, a higher affection. Affection that is, is higher because it's, it's directed to one that is higher, but also because it is higher than any other affection. It is the first affection of the Christian life, and that is our affection for Christ. And secondly, a mutual affection. And one precedes the other. Where there is a real love for Christ, there is and will be a mutual love for one another. And so Paul ends the book with those very, very significant words. Do you love the Lord? Do you have affection for our risen Savior? Is it with dread that you anticipate his coming, or is it with hope and anticipation that the one that you know and love and adore is going to appear to you? It is the higher affection, above all other affections, that governs every affection that we have towards one another. And there is also affection towards one another. We learn to, to walk in integrity in our relationships one with another. What does it look like to, to live in patterns of living that is congruent, that it has a correspondency between the way that God has treated us and proclaims to us what is true about him? And so Paul makes, first of all, this, this first affection very clear, that the governing, the governing affection of all affections is a love for the Lord Jesus. So he takes the pen from the scribe, literally takes the pen from the scribe, give me that pen, and the first thing off of the Apostle Paul's pen said, these are my own words to you. Let anybody who does not love the Lord Jesus be accursed. They're dramatic words. And it's what, what Paul has to say as he takes the pen from the scribe, uh, anathema, accursed. And Paul makes it clear that in the kingdom of God, this is ground zero. There, there is no arena of blessing. There is no kingdom dynamic. There, there is no kingdom whatsoever in our presence where there isn't the love for the one who brings the kingdom. And it's, it's just a, a very, very fast way of, of identifying sharply, this is what it's all about, people. Are you in or are you out? Do you love the Lord Jesus? It's the only path for the church, a love for our Lord. It's the only path of true integrity of all the things that the Apostle Paul has spoken to them. You know, you could memorize your Bible. You could memorize every dictate, every, every moral inclination, every word of God that speaks to you about the way that you should live, the, with the dynamic that you should have in your relationships one with another. But without love for the Lord Jesus, it's all for naught. It's all dead. It doesn't mean anything. And if you have love for the Lord Jesus, if you do possess an affection for the exalted Lord, you know that that is going to infuse very naturally and intuitively every relationship that you have, every opportunity that you have to live in this world. I, 
I had a mentor who taught me years and years ago, said something to me that I, I have never, ever forgotten and has helped me so very, very much. And I try to pass it on as often as I can. This is what he said. He said, Barry, never forget this, that Christians never stop doing Christology. In other words, thinking about Christ. All of their theology is Christology. All of their Christian living is Christology. In other words, it isn't just a small category of Christian thought. Christology is that, that pebble in the middle of the pond that affects absolutely everything. And what he meant by that is that all that Christians do, all that Christians say, all that Christians love, all that they do with their money, all that they do with their enemies, with their tongues and with their fears, all of that comes from a sight of him. If we give, it's because Jesus has given. If we forgive, it's because Jesus has forgiven. If we love, it's because Jesus has loved. And in his final comments, Paul shows that, that, that you know, as he takes this pen from the scribe and his first words about love for the Lord Jesus, he shows and he, and he proves that in his own mind and in his own heart and in his own desire for the church that it's not all about him. He doesn't grab the pen and say, you guys better listen to me. <laughs> it's, it, it, it's not all, all about Paul. It's not about whether they like him or whether even whether they obey him or follow his commands. The greater necessity that comes before all others is, do you love the Lord? And it's also what makes sense of all that the apostle has said. He's an apostle of the Lord. His apostleship makes no sense if it's not understood in the sense of the love for the Lord Jesus transcends everything. Lord, help us. Give us that grace to love you. Paul's words reflect a, a, a rich heritage from his own Jewish background. Let anybody who does not love the Lord Jesus be accursed and then speaks of the coming of the Lord. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. An Aramaic word that was probably considered to be old, even in Paul's day, amongst the believers. But it comes from a Jewish background of, of blessings and curses. And the word anathema is a very strong word, but in the Jewish background, in, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish understanding of Yahweh, it was very much a part of the whoop and wharf of, of what it meant to live in the presence of the Almighty God. There was a place of blessing, and there was also a place of anathema. Yahweh was the one that every Israelite was to love with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this brought real blessing into the life of everybody who loved Yahweh. And while the curse rested on those who were proud and stubborn, Deuteronomy chapter 6 is, is where, where this is spelled out so very, very plainly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And later on it goes, It is the Lord your God that you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest his anger be kindled against you, and you be destroyed from off the face of the earth. 
This is the, this is the, the root, the, the background, the heritage that, that Paul brings into these first words that come off of his pen as he speaks to the Corinthian church. Psalm 31 verse 23 says, Love the Lord, all you his saints. It wasn't anything new to Christians. Love the Lord, all you his saints. But it was understood that there, where there was no love for the Lord, it wasn't benign, it wasn't inconsequential. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but he abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Proverbs 3, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the house of of the righteous. But what is amazing is the exalted Christology that the Apostle Paul brings in all of the things that were associated to Yahweh. It was the Yahweh that you were to love. It was the Yahweh who would come and make all things right. It was Yahweh who would deal with the proud and the stubborn and the rebellious. And all of this in an exalted understanding of who Jesus is, Paul brings all of that in and lays it at the foot of Christ. And it is Christ that you must love it is Jesus that you must love it is he who will bring who will come and a portion blessings and curses and of course the, the the chapter on the resurrection made that very very plain too also didn't it that the reason that the Lord was risen was to bring all things into subjection to the one who's given him all authority and power so it's hard to comprehend just how great our Lord is. I say this over and over again, I, I, I know, but it, it's, it's true. Jesus is not your buddy. He's your closest and dearest friend. But he is the exalted Savior before whom all people are called to say, I love you above all else. Ephesians 1.22 says that God put all things under his feet. There are so many places in the Bible where the exaltedness of Christ is, is, is expounded. This is the one that just perplexes me the most in terms of putting Christ completely out of the realm, even of my imagination. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Gave him to the church. The fullness of him who fills all in all. It's an affection that, that roots and precedes all. He's coming. He's coming. So Paul ends his letter with the one thing that changes everything. And that higher affection leads to a community that is animated with a certain dynamic. Ever belong to something? I think it's absolutely tragic when, when people name Christ and are part of a community but never have a sense of belonging. Through their contributions, through their gifts that Paul is talking about through the book, through their call and vocation to serve God's people. But just that simple privilege of belonging. There's, a, there's an assumption here that you people belong to one another, and this is, this is, this is what, it, what it looks like. And they're animated by, by this higher affection, but it, 
it, it gives a, a glimpse into the mutual affections as well, and it begins with a collection for the saints. The saints. <laughs> Not for the collection of the temple in Jerusalem. As a Jew, Paul would have been familiar with that. I think it was a half shekel. All around the, the, the Roman world, the known world, wherever Jews lived, there was a contribution. Take once a year. Every male was to give a contribution, and it was carried. The Apostle Paul was probably a part of that contrib con contribution and possibly part of the carrying of it also before he was a believer in Jesus. And Paul talks a lot about this particular collection. He mentions it. He also mentions it in the book of Galatians. It talked about through the book of Acts. And he's very concerned that this particular collection would be seen through. But it wasn't merely a, a flow of wealth from rich to poor. And a lot of people just take this verse and they just, like a diving board, they just jump off into the pool of social justice. And yeah, we need to, we need to, we need to help the poor. Well, remember, Paul says it's for the saints, first of all. It's a collection for the saints. It's a collection for, for God's people. But there's a lot more going on here than merely uh, a simple principle of wealth flowing from rich to poor. It, it's, it's far more dynamic than that. It was a flow of wealth from Gentile to Jew. Corinth was a Gentile church. It was a place where the preaching of the gospel was entirely new and where the concept of people who believe in the Messiah who weren't Jews was still absolutely, completely novel. I mean, we take it for granted today. But in that day, this was radical. That these people, way off in Corinth, on, on, uh, so far removed from any Jewish community, stand on the same footing with the same Messiah as the Jewish people. And so, not just from, 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 from poor or from rich to poor, but from Gentile to Jew. And the money wasn't just crossing economic lines, it was crossing the lines of cultural, natural enemies. They hated each other. And every week they were expected to come. And as a discipline of the fact that it's the first day of the week, my Lord is alive. What difference does that make? I'm going to set aside some money for the people that I hate, those Jewish people. Wow. There's a pretty practical demonstration of a kingdom dynamic that has, has something that, that tr transcends what we would naturally, reflexively do in our own culture towards people that are naturally alienated from us. And so giving for Paul was a signal of solidarity, solidarity with the church. This was, this was his mission, so to speak. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the one who was commissioned by the Lord Jesus himself to see these churches planted. And he was anxious that there be a solidarity, that there be an identity amongst God's people where they, they were the same people. But also, not only was it solidarity, it was a debt of gratitude that was paid. You see, why, why were the Jewish believers in Jerusalem poor? Well, yes, there was a famine. But if you also, if you read through the, the, the book of Acts, chapter 4, what were they doing? They were selling their properties, bringing it to the feet of the apostles. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, that's how they died. And, and, and giving up literally all that they had. And so when they started sending out apostles into the Gentile region, where did that money come from? 
It came from the original church in Jerusalem. And so the Apostle Paul makes very, very plain that this isn't just a, a mere collection for, for the poor. It's, it's a contribution that, that goes across natural, cultural boundaries of solidarity also and of gratitude. Paul says this in Romans 15, 27 about this collection. It's very interesting. He says, if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, that is the Jewish spiritual blessing, they ought also to be of service to them in a material blessing. Isn't that interesting? But Paul says, you need to pay them back. The only reason you have what you have is those people gave up everything. And you owe them something. It's simple, fundamental kingdom integrity. It is intuitive to somebody who knows somebody that has given up everything for us. What do you do when somebody's given up everything? <laughs> you act on it. You live it out. Next, Paul is, is looking for integrity in a very delicate and difficult situation in Corinth. The relationships. He's looking for integrity in the handling of relationships. And, and make no doubt about it, the, 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 the relationship with the Apostle Paul and this church is tenuous. This letter is ending with business undone. And it gets worse. As you read through the next book of, of, of Paul's correspondence with this book, yeah, Timothy went to visit the church and it didn't go well. All of the plans that Paul says that he has, I'm going to go this way and then I'm going to come down to you, I'm going to spend the winter with you, all of that. And, and if you're looking for texts about how to discern God's will, notice the humility of the Apostle Paul and how many times he says, if it's the Lord's will. This is the Lord's Apostle. If anybody could declare with, with complete certainty, you would think that I'm going to do this. And the book of James speaks to this also, right? Be careful what you say. Be careful how you declare the will of God. And what Paul describes here didn't happen. Timothy came to him with an awful report, and he went immediately to Corinth, and it didn't go well. And everything changed after Paul wrote this letter. But he, he deals for just a moment with this delicate relationship that he has with Timothy coming to the church. And the church in Corinth was capable of astounding arrogance. We've seen that all through the book with their, with their use of gifts and their, their handling of, of different leaders and their, their rejection of the Apostle Paul and his message about the wisdom of Christ and that upside-down wisdom. And that arrogance was brought out by these two individuals, Timothy and Apollos. Apollos was their hero. They loved Apollos. Give us Apollos. You never have a favorite? I have. I have people I just dearly love, and I, I'm, and, and I, I want to be in their presence all the time because they, they just have such an impact on me. I'd be lying if I said that I didn't have favorites. But how do you handle it? Just be real about it. Don't pretend you don't have favorites. How do you handle it? What, is it? what does it look like? And Paul says, you're not going to get Apollos. He'd love to come to you, but actually he's not going to come. But he says, don't despise Timothy. Timothy was a young man. Timothy was a timid man. Timothy wasn't the kind of guy that the people in Corinth would, would adore and look up to and say, yeah, he's my kind of man. Apollos was. It was a really delicate situation, and it was a situation where the church couldn't afford to be left to their own natural 
instincts. Thank the Lord, eh? And we, we aren't left to our own natural instincts. God help me when I, when those, when I feel those instincts coming to the surface because I, I have favorites. I have people that I like more than other people. And so it's no coincidence that right, right in the middle of this, of this dialogue, say, Apollos isn't coming and, and don't you dare despise Timothy because he's a, he's a young man. It, it's no coincidence that Paul simply breaks off right there to remind them of their calling. Don't act like children. Be watchful. Act like men. Be courageous. Be strong. Be mature. Don't act like children. You even wonder why that why why Paul just breaks off there, and it gives these strong interjections and, and, and imperatives. Well, it's because of the delicateness and the the need for the Corinthians to understand in a particular way their Christian calling in the midst of behavior where it was tempting to be really really bad. Be watchful. Look at your behavior. Does it align with the gospel? Are you acting in love? And you know, those are also the Apostle Paul's final words in the whole book. Isn't that great? I love you. How, how could he say anything else with, with integrity after written 1 Corinthians chapter 13? You know, even if I have the most brilliant wisdom for you in the world, even if I could take those that oppose me and throw them like a mountain into the sea, if I have not love, I'm nothing. I have no enmity towards you. I have only love towards you. That in itself is a kingdom dynamic, full of the integrity of the gospel. But it's in those most familiar, in-house, close and personal dynamics that we are most vulnerable. We can all put on a good show around strangers. It's this in-house stuff. Be mature. Don't trust your natural reflexes. Grow up. Be watchful of your character. What does it look like? Are you doing Christology right now? Are you living and acting and thinking and speaking the way that Christ lived and spoke and acted? They're tremendously helpful words. I reading through the book of Genesis this week and love the story of the encounter with Joseph and his brothers in Egypt. Remember Joseph had a dream, you're all going to bow down to me. They hated him, threw him in a pit and sold him to Egypt. And now they're all bowing down to him. That Joseph is Pharaoh's right hand man. And he reveals himself to them, very emotional thing, and they're all in tears. And they go home to get their dad, and they're going to bring their dad back. And, and just imagine that trip home. Talk about in-house personal dynamics. Joseph's the king of Israel. Thought we got rid of him. And you, if it hadn't been for you, if it hadn't been for your bright, stupid idea of doing that with Joseph, I wanted to kill the guy. It would have been all finished. But just imagine the dynamics going on. And it's the kind of in-house stuff where the apostle Paul speaks to him and says, be aware. And so Joseph's final words to his, to his brothers, I, I love it. This is what he says. He says, oh, and brothers on the way, by the way, don't quarrel. <laughs> don't quarrel. It, it's, it's where we're most vulnerable, where our emotions are most high in the things that are most close and personal to us. 
So remember your calling. And then there's Stephanos, or Stephanos, Stephanos. And sometimes the most needed thing is not more words, but a good example. Thank the Lord that, you know, if the words don't penetrate, if you don't get it, just look around you. And Paul found someone at hand in Corinth, someone that he had confidence to say, if you're wondering what this looks like, if you're, you're clueless what this calling looks like, look at Stephanus. He's one of the first that came to the gospel, and look at him. He's serving the Lord well, him and his people. Just subject yourself to them. But that's not insincere. That's not fake. Say, well, you know what? I'm not sure what this looks like. I'm not sure what, what to do in these situations. What does a kingdom dynamic look like? And I tell you, I have been so helped in my own personal life. And sometimes the people don't even know it. I just say, you know what? There's a person who seems to know what they're doing, and their love for the Lord is obvious. I'm going to just copy them. Look around you in your life. Look to those who might be looking at you. <laughs> Would you want to be copied? And then there's the church in Ephesus. The church in Asia. Ephesus where Paul is. Which Paul gives a glimpse of another amazing reality in the kingdom of God of these mutual affections. They send their love to you. If they could embrace you and kiss you, they would. A dynamic of the kingdom of God. People from every place, every culture, every language who in their place, over there, wherever they are, they're loving and they're serving the same Lord and they love you. Why? Because the higher affection governs all. There's a bond here that was only possible through an amazing power of God. There was Christians everywhere. There was the Christians were all, all across the, the Roman Empire. There was Christians everywhere in a very, very short period of time. It was an absolutely wondrous and miraculous thing. And Paul identifies this and he says this, this church here sends its love to your church over there. And for us today, that's not only across oceans, it's not only across languages, it's not only across cultures, which it does exist in that way. Just stop and think about it for a second. We live in a time zone where the millions and millions of people around this world who have taken time on this Lord's Day, they serve the same risen Lord. And they've gone, some of them in danger, to places where they worship together. They gather together as God's people. And they love the same Lord. And if they could be here today, they would love us. They would hug us and they would kiss us. But it's not only across the, the, the world as we know it today. For us, uh, unlike it was for the people in Corinth and the, the Apostle Paul, for us also, there are people across the, the, the span of 2,000 years. People who have followed the same Lord. People who have loved him dearly. I was listening to a podcast by John Piper this week on autobiographies. He says he's got 40 feet of shelving on, on biographies. 40 feet. John, how do you read all that? We've got about 15 feet of biographies in our library here. I would encourage you to read it. But you know, 
For me personally, that interests me far more than some person who lived in Denmark who was my great, great, great so-and-so. You know, whatever. You know, I don't really concern myself too much about how he or she thought or what they did or how they lived or whatever they did. Yeah, sure, sure, it's interesting, but it really doesn't make any material difference in my life. I want to be a part of a community that has a dynamic that transcends all of that. I want to know how Luther thought. I want to know how the people who lived and died and thought apostolically, just like I'm trying to think apostolically, I want to know what they thought. I want to know how they lived. I, I, I view them as a material blessing. And if I could hug them, I would. Many of them have taught me so much over the years. So if you read, I highly recommend that you read biographies, Christian biographies, autobiographies, George Whitfield, Cross the Ocean, 11 times, or is it 13 times? I forget. I just remember it being an odd number. And if you cross the ocean an odd number of times, guess what? <laughs> you died somewhere. Incredible stories of inspiration. Philippians 3, or Philippians, yeah, Philippians 3, verse 17 says this. Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. Incredible words. So, in conclusion, Paul says, grace. Whose grace? The grace of our Lord Jesus. The grace bookends the entire book. It begins with the grace of God, the grace of God to you, and now he says the grace of God be with you. Two different prepositions, understood in slightly different ways. May the grace of God be with you. May abide with you. What would it look like for God's grace to be with you today? In the situations in which you live, what difference would it make? To be sustained in a love for the Lord. To have your eyes lifted in Maranatha. Come, our Lord, come. To be looking for his return. How would it alter your thoughts, your words, your, your emotions, your, your fears, your your words, your home. The grace of God be with us. Lord, gracious God, thank you that your grace does abide. Help us to long for it, to submit to it, to want to be immersed in it, Lord. Forgive us our foolishness. Heal us of all of our stubbornness, I pray, O Lord. Thank you for these words that direct us to our risen Lord. Jesus' sake, amen.